right, team. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, and I'm excited about today's episode for a number of reasons. Get to uh, dive into one of my favorite topics, which is Jungian psychology. My guest today is somebody that I've wanted to have on the show for a number of years, so it really is an honor to have him here. And my guest today is Dr. James Hollis. Dr. Hollis taught humanities for about 26 years in various colleges and universities before retraining as a Jungian analyst at the Jung Institute of Zurich, Switzerland, from 1977 to 82. He is presently a licensed Jungian analyst in private practice in Washington, D.C., serves as the executive director of the Jungian Educational Center in Houston, Texas for many years, uh, was a director, executive director of the Jung Society of Washington until 2019, and he serves on the JSW Board of Directors. So he is one of the foremost, foremost leading uh, Jungian analysts and thought leaders that has carried on the tradition of Carl Jung. And this is wild. He has written a total of 17 books over the years, which have been translated into Swedish, Russian, German, Spanish, French, Hungarian, Portuguese, Turkish, Italian, Korean, Finnish, Romanian, Bulgarian, Farsi, Japanese, Greek, Chinese, Serbian, Latvian, Ukrainian, and Czech. Whew. Oh my goodness. Uh, he actually has another book coming out at some point this year called The Broken Mirror, Refracted Visions of Ourselves. So, you know, I wanted to have Dr. Hollis on the show to talk about a number of things. The, the main one is he wrote a book that is specifically about men and specifically about the work that men can do. And so we we dive into his perspective from, you know, obviously from a Jungian lens about men and our relationship to fear, uh, how we relate to women, what's happening within male culture today. Has that shifted over, you know, the past however many decades is the work that we as men are being asked to embark on today similar or different from the work that men were being asked to face and embark on within our culture and society, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So we go deep into some aspects of Jungian psychology. Uh, there's certainly more that I would like to dig into with him. And uh, I will certainly be having Dr. Hollis back on the show as we just started to scratch the surface in this hour-long conversation. But without further delay, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please welcome Dr. James Hollis. All right, Jim, welcome to the show. How are you today? All right. Thank you, Connor. Appreciate uh, the invitation to be with you. It's an honor to have you here, and uh, I've dug into your work quite a bit. Uh, over the past few years and read a number of your books. And so it's a, it truly is a treat to be sitting here conversing with you. And I know that everyone that tunes into the show today is going to find something valuable, valuable from this. And so we're going to begin, as I always do, which is with the question, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. And we'll just start there. Well, there's so many that come to mind, it's hard to choose any uh, over another. But I suppose the most important one was at midlife, having achieved everything I thought was important, um, having a, a wonderful family, having a career I enjoyed, um, having achieved my educational goals, professional goals, etc. I was hit with a serious midlife depression, which uh, at the time was wholly unexpected, of course. We don't usually make appointments to have depressions. 
But um, I, I, my first hours of therapy felt like a huge defeat because I was like, I, I'm supposed to figure this out for myself. You better figure out the plan here and work harder at it, you know. And it's like digging the hole deeper when you're, you have a shovel in your hand, you know. And uh, it was the beginning of the second half of life, but I didn't know it at the time. And I came later to appreciate that something inside of me, something intrapsychic, had exercised that sort of autonomy to withdraw its approval and support for how the executive committee upstairs, which I thought was running the show, had been investing its energies in service to certain goals. Not that my goals were wrong. It's that my attitudes toward myself and others were perhaps uh, off base a bit. And uh, so underneath all of that was a conversation in depth that was forced upon me. I didn't choose it. It chose me. And as a result of that, I continued my therapy. It got more and more interesting to me. Naturally, I began as anyone would. How quickly do I get rid of this? And what it led to was deeper and deeper questions around the meaning of my life, my journey. And it ultimately led me to Zurich. I was originally a, a literature professor, a humanities professor, and uh, led me to retrain completely in Zurich, Switzerland. I was uh, there off and on for six years. And uh, when I came back to America to uh, start an analytic practice, which is what I've been doing ever since. So that's a somewhat long-winded <laughs> example, but uh, I would say of all of the substantial moments in my life, that's probably the one that is most signal simply because it occasioned for me a conversation that I don't think or might not have happened in another way. Let's put it that way. And that I, I see it as life-changing, life-transformative. And of course, what I'll add one piece here, which is the most important piece of all, and that is out of that, I came to develop a deep respect for the conversation with the, the depths of the human soul. And that conversation hasn't uh, ended, and it continues to grow more and more interesting as we speak. And it was my first real encounter with the idea of the limitations of my mind and my will, both of which are important. But um, they had also had been uh, marching to the wrong instruction, so to speak. And the soul had to weigh in. When I use the word soul, I'm using it in the literal sense of the Greek word psyche. And, uh, you know, that, that was uh, an encounter with the fact that there's something in me and all of us that knows us better than we know ourselves. And that much of the world we have assembled is really uh, reacting to circumstances around us, around us rather than being truly generated from within. And I had to learn that the hard way, as men often do. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that one all too well. Uh, there's a few things that stood out in what you just said, and I appreciate you sharing a, a little bit about your story. You know, the, the idea of limitations, uh, the, the notion of coming to a sense of transformation or change within our life or even transition in our life um, after a lot of resistance. But I think where, where what I wanted to just sort of poke into a little bit is the notion of coming into contact with something that we don't like within ourselves and wanting to, quote unquote, get rid of it as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in a lot of the work that I've done with men over the number of years that I've been doing this and in all the literature that I've read, that seems to be our 
almost like a, a primary response that naturally happens, right? We feel anxious. We don't like that. We want to get rid of it. So for everyone that's out there listening to this and like is, you know, yes, I've had that experience. How do we begin to navigate the situations or the experiences within us, say anxiety or depression or mm-hmm. inner criticism, where our natural predilection is to want to reject it? How do we be like, where, where do we begin? What, what would you say we should be sort of looking at or, or reframing, et cetera? Well, that's a good word, reframing. I use that often because it depends uh, on how we see what's happening to us. Of course, I experienced that midlife depression as an intrusion as if it had come from outside, when in fact it was from within my own soul. And I came in time to ask a different kind of question, several different questions, um, one of which, which is very obvious after the fact, but didn't occur to me initially, is why has this come to me? Not how quickly do I get rid of it, but why has it come to me? Mm. Why is my psyche not supporting me? Why is it opposing me? And um, it was the beginning, as I mentioned, of a long conversation, which is only deepened through the years, in terms of having a kind of dialogue with something in us that knows us more than we know ourselves. And has our best interests at heart, not necessarily our outer career goals or relational goals, obviously, but um, our our own sense of wholeness, our own sense of purpose in life, and, and so forth. And in my particular case, I had learned, I think as a child, to protect myself from overwhelming feelings uh, given life circumstances, by intellectualizing them, by, by distancing myself from them. And it wasn't that I was absent of feeling, it's just that I had distanced them within my myself. And so when they came up, they came up in very powerful ways, as they often do. And so later, I came to appreciate the fact that, that feeling is not something you choose It's a qualitative analysis of what's happening in your life at that moment as viewed by this different center of wisdom that is within you. Mm. That is to say, you may choose not to pay attention to your feelings. You could anesthetize them. You can project them onto others. You can try to outrun them. But they've already happened. And feelings happen before our thoughts about them occur. And so, for example... Let's just say that you've worked very hard to be in a particular career or job, and you have what you sought, but there's no sense of meaning to it, no sense of pleasure, no sense of accomplishment. So there's an internal discrepancy. Do you just work harder, which is sort of what I did and most men would do? Or, oh, let's just change jobs. And you realize that discord follows you to the new job. And then you begin to realize, oh, there's something you know that follows me wherever I go here. The same can be true for relationships, obviously. And then you begin to to ask, all right, so what is it that's going on inside of me? Mm. And if a man doesn't stop to ask that question, he'll simply continue to be angry, depressed, puzzled, looking for um, someone or some circumstances to blame, or medicating himself, or something. Uh, Because over time, that discord is really intolerable. So the only question is, what's your treatment plan going to be? Mm. And is it going to help you get through this to something more integrated, more, more uh, whole for you? 
or is it going to deepen your your internal splits? Yeah, I, I like that. Um, I mean, I like all of what you just said, and I think the the notion of you know emotions aren't something that you necessarily choose, but but you can observe your reaction to them and maybe begin to choose your response to them in some capacity. I know a friend and mentor of mine, Dewey Freeman, has has said in, in some ways, health is our ability to choose, it's our capacity to choose in the face of what's emerging, you know? And I kind of hear you saying a version of that is that if if we choose to try and repress those feelings or emotions, if we try and avoid them, if we, you know, villainize them and hate them, project them onto other people, we never actually have a sense of, I don't know if ownership is the right word, but we never have a sense of integration or connection or relationship to the experience that's actually transpiring within us. I feel like we could go deeper into this, and I I think we probably will as we continue down this pathway. So I'm just going to ask the the query that I was really curious about when I asked you to come on the show. You know, I read your book a number of years ago and revisited it recently uh, under Saturn Shadow. How the landscape of male culture has changed since you wrote it and what has sort of stayed the same, what's changed and what you perceive to be the work of men within our modern culture right right now? Mm-hmm. Well, there's several large questions there. Um, I would say, first of all, uh, most men are adrift, horribly isolated. When that book came out, I was deeply touched to get letters from literally around the world, the Australian outback. It's like, how does the book get that far? And uh, people saying, you know, I always thought there was something wrong with me because I had these issues or I had those kinds of experiences in my life. And I realized, well, but that's normal and natural and uh, other men have them. And then you begin to realize if you don't know that by now, look what isolation you've been living in. Mm. One of the capacities that women have is the ability to share often share painful feelings, feelings of failure and inadequacy with their friends. Men learn in childhood not to go there because you wind up being put down, shamed, ridiculed. So you learn early, shut it down inside. When I returned from Zurich in the 1980s, early 80s, um, I think I had probably nine women to one man in my practice. Today, it's the reverse. I have nine men to, to one woman. And there are two reasons for that. One, it's more acceptable for men to address these questions and to solicit some kind of conversation with another person around them than it was a number of decades ago. And, and secondly, I think men are even in more trouble, uh, even more adrift than they were. And so the work with men that I do today is very, very moving because the first task is really confession. That is to say, this is what I'm really experiencing. This is what I'm really feeling. And you know, the irony is a lot of men have trouble getting to that. Mm. A colleague of mine in San Francisco said once, usually women walk in the office the first hour pretty clearly able to articulate what's going on for them. He said it often takes a man a year to get to that point. And so the first need is to be honest with yourself, as simplistic as that sounds. This is what I really am experiencing. And, you know, maybe with all of my accomplishments, uh, a deep sense of inadequacy or failure or 
isolation or confusion or whatever it is. It's not going to be pretty, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you're carrying it anyhow. So it's kind of like having a splinter under your skin. You can say, well, since I can't see it today, I'm going to ignore it. Well, it's doing its work underground, you know, and sooner or later is going to pathologize in a way that you will regret. Mm. And so the, the first thing for men is to actually learn to be a bit more honest with themselves. And then, if at all possible, to share some of that with another man. Um, men sometimes are willing to share it with women. Um, but And women will often say, uh, what can I do to help? Or, or let, me, let me suggest this or that to you. And what a man most needs, I think, is to feel validated in whatever it is he's already experiencing. Hmm. When I've been asked to talk to women's groups, I generally say three things about those strange creatures called men. And by the way, I've never been asked by a men's group to talk to them about women. It says something. <laughs> women want to know more about men and what's, what makes them tick. I say, first of all, if you cut away forever your closest friends, the ones you do talk to about your marriage, your body, your worries about your children, what's really happening in your life, those people are gone forever. Secondly, you have to sever your connection to whatever is your guiding source, whether you call it your instinct or your intuition, whatever you call it, that's cut. And thirdly, your worth as a person will be predominantly defined by your meeting external standards of productivity defined by total strangers. And if you should happen to reach today's quota, the, the goalpost will be moved tomorrow and the day after that. So it's a never-ending cycle of having to prove yourself. Now, when women hear that, they're appalled because they think how horrible that would be, how isolated. And the truth is, it is horrible. And yet men have learned, usually in childhood, to distance yourself from those feelings because you can't afford them. They'll get in the way of your producing today or tomorrow, and you're going to get shame for sharing them in most cases, all right? And one of the questions I've asked men in therapy is, when do you think you started shutting down inside? Mm. And I sometimes have to explain what I mean by shutting down, when you, you, you just started sort of suppressing and I can remember some specific incidents in childhood where I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to go there anymore. And, and I would guess they were around five, six, seven years old in that area. So already the self-denial and self-repression uh, was at work, you see. So, you know, that's, it's, again, so they're rather long answer to your question, but it's a, um, an ongoing problem. And I think more men have, the culture has changed some, somewhat at least parts of the country, to allow men to the luxury of a conversation with another man, which is one reason why a man can profit from working with a, a woman therapist if she's in, in good relationship to her own inner masculine, so to speak. Um, but it might be useful to have these conversations with men if he has done his own work too. Mm-hmm. Having gone through the psychoanalytic or Jungian um, uh, tradition, our, the central piece of our training is our own personal analysis. You know, as Jung said it so succinctly, you can't take a person any further than you've traveled yourself. And that's true for all, all men and women. 
You can't take your children further than you've traveled. You can't take your relationship further than you've traveled. Where you're stuck, others are going to get stuck around you, you see. So, um, you know, it's an evolving picture. And um, I think in another factor here is men need to feel linked to some bigger picture in their life beyond just being uh, productive, even if that's still a normative idea for many men, if not most. Um, why? In service to what? What am I really here for, you see? I mean, that question has to occur to you. I mean, I think it occurs to us in our 20s, but it's like it all gets buried because you still have so many specific goals out there you have to address, like get a job, learn to support yourself, being able to pay for dwelling and supportive relationship and potentially support children and so forth. But um, that other question haunts, who am I really apart from my roles? And why am I here in service to what? And it can't be just in service to making more widgets or killing time by, you know, playing golf or whatever you do. Nothing wrong with golf, of course. It's this like, why am I here just hanging out till I die? And for a lot of men, that's been the case. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in some ways I was chuckling internally about, you know, you said nothing against golf, but I was like, golf is such a, a good metaphor for the the sort of masculine pursuit of fulfillment. You know, you hit the ball, you got to walk after it. You hit the ball, you got to walk after it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's constantly it's somewhere out there in front of you. <laughs> but, out there. That's right. Yeah. Well, and but, it's interesting because it's a humbling game too. I, I used to play golf. I, I haven't for many years now, but it's a humbling game because you might've had a good shot uh, last time, but today, right now is the one you're going to really mess up, you know? So it's very humbling. Yeah. Very, very, very true. Um, you mentioned the word, you mentioned the word, uh, purpose or function or why you're, you know, why we are here. Maybe you didn't use the word purpose exactly, but you sort of asked the question why we're here. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of men asking that question, you know, what is my purpose? What does purpose even mean? How do I find purpose? And it's, I think culturally it's become a bit of a buzzword. You know, I was talking with the men in uh, our group recently and, you know, it's just sort of sharing that there's something like 250,000 plus books on Amazon that all are about purpose. And so clearly there's a deep question that is constantly and continually emerging within the lives of men and women. But I think for men especially, it's something that is quite prominent within our minds, within our psyche, and within our soul. And so I'm hoping if you can speak just a little bit to the notion of purpose, maybe how you would define it, if there's a different word that you would use, and what it actually looks like for a man to begin that journey to embark towards towards his purpose. Yes, I, maybe what we need to do is repurpose purpose here. Um, I had plenty of purpose in my first half of life, and I was serving the question that basically life presents all of us in the first half, and I'm using half in a very loose way here, less chronologically than psychologically. And whatever your environment is saying to you, from your family of origin to the neighborhood you live in, the religious and cultural values you were raised with, and, and so forth, it's all about can you develop enough ego strength to hold your own, to adapt, to fit in, to be able to function in this society. And it may involve very specific things like skills, like driving and, and learning a trade and so forth. 
And and if you're run over with a truck on your 30th birthday or 35th or 40th even, you might say, well, it was a short life, but he did what he was supposed to do. And that was grow up, function in the world, fit in, and so forth. I think another kind of question comes in the second half of life, and it will be triggered for different people in different ways. For some people, it doesn't occur until they're forced into retirement and they didn't realize how much the job was carrying their sense of self and assignments in life uh, or a, a breakup of an important relationship. In my case, obviously, it was the depression. And then you have to ask the question, what is life wanting from me? Or what is the soul wanting? Or I, in the first half of life, I, I'm learning what the world wants of me, and I have to sort of meet their demands for good or for ill. But then I have to ask the question, and, and what does the soul want of me? Again, that, that deep essence that we carry within each of ourselves, and yet from which we tend to be separated so often. And that's a humbling question. Again, that's a question that leads one back to the drawing board. And when I entered my first hour of therapy, as I mentioned, I wasn't looking to change my life, my career, my geography, anything like that, but I wound up changing everything <laughs> in the long run. And, and at the same time, uh, you get a reward that rises out of that, which is that sense of purpose or that sense of meaning. Meaning is not something we create. It's a byproduct of being in right relationship to your own soul at the moment. That's one of the delusions of, you know, the pursuit of happiness. Well, what does that mean? For many people, it gets transformed to something tangible, like the newest shiny electronic thing, the house on the corner, the new car, the, the appropriate partner, et cetera, et cetera. Well, okay, but we all know sooner or later, whatever the projection was onto those other, it will not carry the worth and weight of your own soul, not very long. And then you have to fall back into having to live with yourself and maybe other people having to live with you as well. So then, then the question comes, if it's not about happiness, what is it about? Well, where you feel that what you're doing is being sustained and rewarded intrapsychically. For example, in my day job, I am a therapist. I work usually eight hours per day or more. And I could have never imagined as a child being present to other people's suffering would have been meaningful to me. I couldn't have imagined. Now, it doesn't make me happy, but I'm happy to have the privilege of exactly that kind of relationship. To be able to share people's journey with them is a profound um, privilege. And I could never have known that. I, I've continued to teach and write through the years as well. And all of those have to do with the basic notion, if I have found such and such valuable, why wouldn't I want to share it? Which is why I'm still teaching and still writing. I'm just about 82 and, um, and not, not uh, finished yet, I hope. And um, underneath all of that is the recognition that I've said several times already, there's something in me that responds when I'm tracking right with it. And there's something inside that protests. Our word psychopathology, symptoms we have, psyche, soul, pathos, suffering, logos, expression. So psychopathology is the expression of the suffering of the soul. 
So whether it's a relational discord or it's an intrapsychic in, encounter such as anxiety or depression, or if it's a behavioral thing like an addiction or whatever, those, those are key indications that something inside is crying out for our recognition and, and our honest conversation with it. And when you do that, things begin to emerge and you begin to realize there's something here that I'm tracking that is important. And once I know that, I can't let go of that. You don't stop that. I was in the fourth year of my analytic experience out of six in Switzerland. And of course, if I was four years into it, I certainly valued what I was getting. But I walked out of analysis once, and it would have been a typical gray, rainy Zurich winter, pretty miserable. And I saw the first rays of a possible sun. And I had this thought, one more dream pointing me in the same direction. And the thought followed, holy cow, or words to that effect, there's something inside that's talking to me. And it's been saying the same thing. I have to acknowledge the reality of that. Now, it was one thing that was already understood conceptually. It's what you call the self with capital S, not to be confused with the ego, which is my ordinary consciousness. Our two egos are communicating at this moment, but you know, we, we carry a world within ourselves that can invade those ego states at any given moment. So it occurred to the ego at that moment that it was in relationship to something far, far deeper than ordinary consciousness. And that's what I felt shifted everything intrapsychically. Another way of putting that is it moved from a thought of the mind to an experience of the heart. I knew from that point on you know, Albert Camus wrote once, he said, in the midst of winter, I found that I carried an invincible summer in me. And he said, this engagement, this encounter is um, profoundly meaningful because it means when the world pushes me, something inside of me will, will learn to push back. And one is never, never alone or bereft when you know you carry that within you because you have within you the capacity to find what is really right for you. And then, of course, will you have the courage to live it, which is another question, and use your, your brain and your life experience to figure out how you go about doing that. People have often said to me, well, do you think I should do this or do that? And I often have said, yes. You know, it's like both are important to you. Figure out a way to honor both. It may seem impossible to beginning, but figure out a way you can do that. What I hear you saying is that purpose is connected to the soul and the soul's desire, if I'm not mistaken, and that we've maybe culturally put a different label on it to whatever, right? To sort of make it sort of more mainstream or, or maybe it's just a, a disconnection from what it inherently is. But I, I appreciate the way that you uh, laid that out. So I'm I'm curious because I think I think one of the challenges men often have when they enter into the periods that you're talking about, right? Whether they're you know they they've sort of entered into the negredo or the dark night of the soul, and they you know everything's sort of falling apart, or they're looking for a sense of purpose, or you know they're going through a transition in their life. Is that some of these things often are 
vague maybe is not the right word, but they're they're more ethereal than what our rational linear brains are used to as men. And and I think that that poses an inherent problem for most men, which is that they almost don't know the directions to the territory that they're entering into. And so there's there's a deep frustration. And so I'm I'm hoping that you can speak to how does a man, when he sort of felt this call or this pull, and he knows he's entering into maybe new or foreign territory, how does he begin to build a kind of compass to navigate what uh, or traverse what his soul might be asking him for? Uh, so I know I'm maybe asking you a very large question, and, and hopefully I'm formulating it correctly. No, it's a huge question, and, and that's exactly what I work with as a therapist. Um, how do we help a person find their, their way through the forest? And, uh, you know, let me just back off a little bit. When I returned from Zurich and I was seeing men and women, as I said, initially women, one thing everyone had in common, or they wouldn't have come to therapy. They might have an, an initial presenting issue, like a career, a relationship, whatever. But in everyone's case, and these were people all over 30, their understanding of self and world was not working very well for them. Their roadmap would seem not to be applicable to the territory in which they found themselves. And then you find yourself in those terrible in-betweens in life. You know, the opening sentence of Dante's Inferno was midway in life's journey. I found myself in a dark wood having lost the way. That happens to people. It happens periodically. It's not just midlife, although that's often a critical transition. It happens whenever your old assumptions, marching orders, and um, shall we say map of the terrain has played out no longer applicable, if it ever was. It's not in accord with your inner life. So um, first of all, I would want to validate that when these things happen, that's not something necessarily horrible, and it's not a failure on your part. It's because your psyche is moving on and is inviting you to travel with it rather than impose something upon it. You see, that's the big distinction. Because again, what are the delusion that, that we who are men often have, I certainly did, was it was all about figuring out what you wanted to do or thought you wanted to do and then sort of doing it, executing the plan, arriving at your goals, and that's going to take care of everything. Well, <laughs> We have plenty of evidence that doesn't always solve the problem, as we know. I, m I remember years ago reading one of the uh, original financiers, an uh, uh, arbitrator, who, who said he had a personal fortune of $400 million, which is more than you and I make in a week when you think about it, right? And he says, the goal of life is to have the biggest pile at the end. I remember thinking, biggest pile. First of all, you're dead. And number two, pile of what? It could be sand. could be Barbie dolls. It could be, be toys. What is this? You know, it was a pure quantification of the whole life journey. And he wound up in prison. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's deceased now. But, you know, that's, that's a classic male trap, you know, set a goal, reach it, and you've arrived. But we learn the hard way. There's no there there. And that's because we, we grow somewhat absent-spirited along the way. You know, we lose contact with something. When what you're doing is right, there's some energy in you that's really supportive and, and, and present to you. You can mobilize that energy, and sometimes you have to, 
But to continue to mobilize it in the wrong directions always begins to lead to boredom, uh, depression, self-medication, uh, burnout, and, and so forth. So that's another way in which we realize um, there is something inside of each of us that has an intentionality different from whatever internalized goals I have identified with, you see. So the word psychotherapy from the Greek means literally to listen to the soul. Therapoiens, to listen or attend. So whether you see a therapist or not is sort of irrelevant this moment. It's about, because frankly, some therapists wouldn't be worth seeing if they haven't really addressed these issues themselves. I don't mean that disrespectfully. But if they haven't addressed these issues, they won't know what you're talking about either. But you have to say, all right, I have to start listening here, paying attention to. And that's when you begin to realize, yeah, you do have those feelings that are already happening. Your only question is whether you're going to honor them in some way, not necessarily act them out in any literalistic way. That's missing the point. But honor, honor what they are trying to tell you. The energy systems you have that are present when you're doing whatever is right for you and not present when you're pushing against the stream. Um, thirdly, your dreams will support you. And most people don't realize that we average six dreams per night. And sleep research tells us that. And nature doesn't waste energy. It's processing our life and responding and probably metabolizing some of the vast uh, quantity of stimuli we get every day. So even if we don't remember our dreams or pay attention to them, they're probably still serving a natural function within the system. But if you do pay attention over time, you begin to realize there is something even more profound, something there that is seeking to communicate with me that's commenting on my life. If I ever thought there was, and this is Jung's phrase, a two-million-year-old person inside of me, that is to say, they had the wisdom of nature, not necessarily of our culture, not talking about your production quota for next quarter, you see, but the wisdom of nature, it would behoove us to stop and pay attention. And most of all, is this question of meaning. If what you're doing is meaningful, that carries you through everything. It carries through times of desolation, carries you through suffering. Um, because something there is larger than the comforts of the ego. And, and that's where your spirit is found, ultimately, you know? The people that I would admire, maybe you would admire too in our culture, are rather few and far between, but I would admire Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who was safe in America in the 30s and um, um, went back to Germany to stand up against the Hitlerian regime and ultimately wound up being executed by the Nazis. I, I admire Nelson Mandela, who fought for independence. And even though unfairly imprisoned, um, came out not bitter, but uh, resolved to work the issues through and in some ways embodied the tension of opposites within. So I, I think, you know, you see in those people, not easy lives, not lives that uh, were filled with happiness. And yet what they did makes us happy in some way because it stood for something that rose from the soul. It stood for something that in the end mattered.
And I think that's within the psychic life of every man and every woman, of course. And beneath that is is really, the, again, that core mystery. What am I here for? I mean, job is one thing. Vocation is something else. And vocation is vocatus, vocal, to be called. Who are you called to be as a person on this planet? You see, that's that's your calling. Job is secondarily. That's how you pay your bills. Now, if you can bring those two together, that's a wonderful occasion. But many times we can't for a lot of reasons. So you you understand the function of supporting yourself and those whom you love. And also, you, you owe something to that vocatus, that, that vocation. As a person, you lose that, you've lost everything. Hmm. I have so many questions that are emerging in this dialogue <laughs> that I feel like we could uh, certainly chat for hours and hours and hours about this. Uh, you mentioned resolving the temp the resolving the tension of opposites, mm-hmm. and I would love for you to just maybe unravel that a little bit more because that feels quite important given the current nature of of the of the world, especially in Western culture and within the individual as well. Mm-hmm. Sure, easy issues have easy answers: uh, yes or no, black or white, binary outcomes. Large issues, like the balance of relationship between what do you owe others and what do you owe yourself, or you know what where's a uh, a choice really coming from in you? The large issues are always going to be paradoxes in which the other is true also or, or the other has a legitimate claim on you, and so in the face of that, you have to say, "All right, somehow a resolution that embraces both." is essential. But when that can't be resolved, you always have to ask the question, what is the third? And the third, and Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz spoke about this very eloquently, the third is what is the developmental project that arises for that person out of that dilemma? So if I said to you, I'm seeing a person who's in a problematic relationship, do you think he should leave that relationship? Should he Stick it out and work something through. And you say, well, I don't know all the variables. I mean, who knows? It's going to vary from person to person. Absolutely correct. But in one case, the developmental issue for the person would be, yeah, you cut and run when things get difficult. Some, somewhere in your life, you have to listen, pay attention, work this through. All right. For someone else, maybe the premise was flawed from the beginning. And you need to find the courage to leave that and move to something better. I don't mean another person, but a a better sense of your own personal authority. So again, the third is going to be the developmental task that arises out of this dilemma for that person. That's why I said, if you often have to observe different values at the same time, Maybe they are values, and maybe you need to serve them in that way, but you're able to do it because you have a larger sense of purpose and why you're doing it. You know, as Nietzsche said, if you have a why, you can live with any how, and, and I think that's, that's true. On a collective basis, uh, you know, this is, this is heavy water for a lot of folks, and it's far easy to, easier to fall into either or kinds of thinking. 
uh, there's a fundamentalist inside of each of us says, well, you know, I, I just soon have the um, clarity, marching orders, uh, absence of ambiguity. I'd like to polarize because that way I know what's good and what's wrong and, and so forth, you know. Well, life is seldom that way. And it's, it's an immaturity that leads us to that kind of polarization. And it's a psychological task to embrace the opposites within the other. One of the things that I've always thought about and, and often spoke about when we're dealing with the others out there is to start with the recognition that as reductionistic as it sounds, many, if not most of our behaviors come out of our fears. So if you don't I have some idea of what the fears are of that other person, you're never, ever going to really have a bridge to them. And you need to know whether they're conscious of it or not is irrelevant at this moment. Until you can begin to address those fears, um, you're not going to have an honest conversation. And when you do, you'll find some of those fears are, are you know, purely fantasies. They're, they're not connected to reality. And sometimes they're rising out of that person's real life experience, which allows you to see, well, that's why they've come to this position, whatever it may be, you see. The moment you have those kind of conversations, some of the rancor and animosity begins to soften. I know occasions where people have been brought together for conversations and even occasions where polarized groups of people such as prisoners and guards in prisons, when they're brought into a, a, a dream group, as crazy as that sounds, to share their dreams is like the animosity between them because you can't see this guy as the enemy. You have to see him as a person who's struggling in ways very analogous to what you're struggling with. And, and you begin to see there's a, there's a kinship underneath the differences that you carry. So, you know, the work of healing starts with ourselves as individuals. If I'm not able to address those opposites within me, I'm going to be dumping them on my neighbor. Part of what Jung meant as the shadow, the things I don't want to deal with in myself, I, I project onto others, you know. And if I realize they're in me as well, I can lift them off of my enemy, so to speak, and begin to see him or her as another human being with aspirations not unlike mine and fears not unlike mine. And that changes everything. Yeah, I, I want to talk more about fear. Um, in, in, a, in a moment, I'm curious, just out of personal, uh, just out of sheer personal curiosity. I mean, I've read a lot of, and you've done some work in the Jungian department. And by no means am I anywhere, <laughs> anywhere close to where you are. But I've sort of had this notion that a lot of the challenges socially that we have begun to experience in the last decade or so. Uh, you know, Jung talked extensively about the collective unconscious. And I feel like through the internet and through social media, we've created an externalized digital version of the collective unconscious where we go online and we're interacting with other people's unconscious contents, you know, their reactivity, their shadow, their emotions, their narratives, their hidden beliefs. And all of a sudden, we're not actually having a conversation with the conscious version of them. We're interacting with their deep unconscious psychic contents. And that, for me, has posed a very large sort of question of like, well, how do we 
you know, how do we begin to, to navigate through that? How do we begin to maybe alter the systems that we've created for, through social media and the internet and et cetera? But I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that uh, sort of idea or notion that the collective unconscious is sort of embedded or baked into our interactions within things like social media and and through through online through the internet. Sure. Well, first of all, if you'll forgive me, I want to just define that what Jung meant by the collective unconscious Please, had yeah. to do with something intrapsychic to each human being. You could see the human being as a kind of pyramid here with a very tiny apex is consciousness. Mm -hmm. And then a section there that represents everything that's ever happened to you. So that's the personal unconscious. You know, that's Connor's life story in there, this psychoactive. Any aspect of it could be activated and, and rise and take over and inform his conscious life. It happens all the time. The deeper layer at the bottom is your link to humankind. So we respond to the same symbols our ancestors responded to. You can have a dream tonight that is literally the same dream in essential features as someone thousands of years ago. And we have ample evidence of that sort of thing. That's what Jung meant by the collective unconscious. Now, that said, Jung also pointed out the larger the group, the lower the level of consciousness. Hmm. So you can see how there would be a level of unconsciousness in the mob, for example. How conscious is a rock group, you see, yeah. or a lynch party, or, 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 you know, people caught up in fads or fashions or something like that? What does it take? Why does it take hold in a person? It's like, I have to have a certain kind of coat this year, or I have to have a certain kind of car. I mean, what is that but the sort of loss of an individual awareness and, and being sort of caught up in, subsumed into... A, a, a kind of collective mind, if you will. Hmm. So you're right. The internet, rather than solve our problems, is often the sort of basket in which the unaddressed issues for individuals gets projected onto others. The hate groups have been able to recruit much more effectively, you see, because they don't have to stand up and talk to a person in his face. You can put the stuff out there and some people will respond to it, you see. The relative anonymity of the internet also facilitates that. If you're going to sit down and talk person to person, you're more likely, it's not guaranteed, but more likely to be able to carry on a, a, a conversation that has some measure of dialogue around it. So, you know, the internet, like any other tool, has its gift. We're using it right now on the other hand, the shadow follows wherever we go. You can name any invention, mm -hmm. most of which were done for humanitarian reasons or some other good cause. And then you can see, well, down the line, this is also what it produced. Mm -hmm. So we can always be sure that the shadow is present too. The greater the light, the longer the shadow, as the saying has it. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Well, so I want to tie this into the fears then, because in in your book, again, in Under Saturn's Shadow, you, you talk about, I don't know, I can't remember if, what, if it's one of the principles or, or pillars or uh, sort of rules, but you, you talk about how men's lives are largely governed by fear. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that and having this sort of simultaneous response to it, which I feel like was is probably maybe common for most men, but certainly I had it which was, yes, that seems true. And 
uh, vehement rejection of it. Sure. Uh, and sort of like an uh, automatic rejection of it. And so I'm hoping that you can maybe just talk a little bit more about our relationship as men to fear and that notion that a man's life is governed by fear. Sure. I, I you know, much of women's life is, our lives are gathered, uh, governed by fear too. I mean, Fear is not the problem, if, because if we had no fear, we'd walk right in front of a car or walk right up to the tiger. So fear is a, an, an attribute of nature designed to protect you. However, you know, it's one thing to have fear. It's something else to have a fearful life. And I think we know the difference. Fear often lies at the bottom of so many of our behaviors, whether they're aggressive, pacifying ideas, accommodating ideas avoidant ideas and so forth, if you track them deeply enough, they'll come out either as fears of being overwhelmed by the demands of life or fearing abandonment. So the key is to recognize when my life is, when my choices are being governed by fear. You could say something today or fail to say something today that had its origin in your childhood. You could be in a situation where you want to speak up, but an archaic encounter literally decades ago said, when I did that, it made things worse. So we learned to shut that down. And so you become in many ways adaptive, but less and less a creature of your own values and so forth. That's why we often walk, walk away and think, boy, I wish I'd thought about that. Or why didn't I speak up about that? You say, we well, can be sure those were fear-based responses. Again, not to judge it, but to understand it. Um, and a very important question here that we should ask about any choice we make that has any real consequence. But where is this coming from inside of me, really? And you have to add that word really, because don't trust your first answer. It's going to be the old protective nature of your systems, you see. And so if I, quote, do a good thing, Maybe it's not really a good thing if I track it. Maybe it's an old codependent thing. Maybe I'm trying to curry favor. Maybe it's manipulative. Maybe it's whatever. So don't trust your first response. It's, it's the reflexive response you learned long ago and far away to protect yourself. That's what's called the false self. And underneath that is a, a soul that has choices to make. And Jung defined neurosis as the flight from authentic suffering. Now, notice he doesn't rule out suffering. He implies it's either authentic or inauthentic. The inauthentic suffering is going to be the one where the old fear-based defenses take over, whose motive is very understandable to make life as easy as possible for you, right? But sometimes that's not really what life is calling for at this moment in the journey. Maybe the easy choice is for you, in this moment, the wrong choice, you see. There's another path that is more authentic, more life-giving to you and to those whom you love. And that's a different kind of, of place from which to, to, to choose. So one of the things we learn early as children, as best we can, hide the fact that you're afraid. Hmm. Because, again, other boys will laugh at you, shame you, and, and so forth. When I was a child, and this is literally decades ago, the worst thing we could say about another boy is to call him a jelly, you know, I guess because mm -hmm. he had no strength or spine or whatever. And you didn't want to be called a jelly. 
Hmm. And, 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 um, so it, it starts early. It starts early. Yeah. So you learn to stuff it. You le- learn to hide it. You learn to, even in time, think you are your persona, which is the Greek word for mask. You are your mask, but you're not really. That same frightened child is inside of you and frankly is, um, driving your vehicle more than you think and making choices for you more than you think. Mm. Yeah, I I can relate to that. Uh, I think, you know, over a decade ago when I started doing this work, that was probably one of the largest surprises to see how much my younger self was behind the steering wheel. (laughs) Never, never, never stops ceasing to amaze me of, you know, where, where he shows up. But yeah, I can't remember who said it exactly, but it's something along the lines of like, it's easier for a man to say F you than it is for him to say I'm scared or I'm hurt. Oh, absolutely. And that, that seems quite pervasive. Well, again, I feel like we could talk for hours, but I want to be respectful of your time because we're, we're almost up here on, on the hour. And um, I want to give you just a moment to talk about uh, your current projects. I think that you have some stuff going on right now that is very relevant to men that I would just like for you to, to speak about. And then I would love for the men to, that are listening to this to engage with. Well, thank you. Yes. Uh, my colleague um, in, in Los Angeles, uh, Jose Pardo, and I have made a film called uh, Soul Heal, one word. And it's a 23-minute film about men, for men, but women have profited from listening to it also, in which we have some dialogue with me and with another of my uh, women colleagues who's an analyst, and a lot of visual images and so forth around the question of what does it mean to be a man today and what are men's issues Mm. and what do they need to learn to begin to take care of themselves. And if the men who are listening here have an interest in that, you can see it for a massive dollar ninety nine. If you Google up or put in a search engine "soul heal film," that's one word: s o u l h e a l f i l m dot com. It'll take you there, and and any money that comes out of that is going to go to to, to charities devoted to helping young boys at risk and and women's abuse shelters. Um, and we did it to promote um, conversation with men. We, we consider it uh, an invitation to a conversation. So it's soulheal.com. And I, I hope the men out there will find it of some value, perhaps the women in lo- their lives as well. Wonderful. Well, we'll have the links to that in the show notes, along with uh, the books that I mentioned that you've written throughout this show and uh, links to your website as well so that if people are looking for more information on you, they can just click on the on the links there. Uh, well, Jim, listen, thank you so much for, for this conversation. This was wonderful. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll, we'll have you back on. But thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to meet you, Connor. And I appreciate your uh, effort to undertake this, um, this healing work because if it decreases by 1% men's isolation from themselves and therefore from others, it will be a huge service to humankind. So thank you. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much. And for, for everyone that's out there listening, don't forget to share this episode with just one person that you know will enjoy this conversation. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. <laughs>